I'm your host, Ray Dogum, and welcome to Vibecast. Vibecast is Vibe Bio's weekly podcast where we explore some of the hottest topics in drug development and policy, investment strategies, and technology innovation. Our guest today is Bill Smith. Bill has over 25 years of experience in government and in corporate roles, including senior staff positions for the Republican House Leadership on Capitol Hill, the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, and the Massachusetts Governor's Office. He was at Pfizer for 10 years working on public affairs and policy. Last year, he published a book called Rationing Medicine, Threats from European Cost-Effectiveness Models to America's Seniors and Other Vulnerable Populations. Bill, I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you today and diving deep into the uh, current biotech landscape and policymaking landscape, including the effects of the Inflation Reduction Act, among other things. Yeah, Ray, I, I don't consider myself an expert on biotech. Uh, I was a big pharma for a long time, and I was grappling with a lot of the issues that big pharma grapples with. Um, but I will say that, as you know, that biopharma is, is an ecosystem. It's not, there's no clear line between biotech and big pharma. Big pharma funds biotech, although I think venture is a more important source of financing these days. Uh, but you know, if if big pharma caught a cold, uh, biotech may get the flu. So that's that's my kind of view of inf the Inflation Reduction Act. I appreciate that. So can you describe maybe a little bit more about what you did um, on Capitol Hill and uh, at Pfizer specifically, just briefly, like what kind of accomplishments you've had there, and then we can dive or dive deep into uh, the current landscape. Yeah, sure. I, well, I, well, I was a Republican leadership aide uh, on Capitol Hill, and. It was during the famous crack epidemic, and drug control policy was on everybody's lips, and there were many, many bills circulating around the House, and I got assigned to follow all the bills for the Republican leadership. I was like the go-to guy. And the uh, in 1988, they created the Drug Czar's Office, the Office of National Drug Control Policy in the White House, and Bill Bennett was the first person to fill that job, and he was looking for somebody who could do legislative affairs on Capitol Hill, and he hired me. So I followed anti-drug legislation, you know, illegal drugs, not legal drugs, for quite a while. Um, I did interact a lot with DEA and sometimes with FDA, but um, it, I, that was, you know, biotech and drug therapies, legal drug therapies were not really my expertise at the time. But I went on to, after the president lost in 92, I went up and worked for Bill Weld, who was the governor of Massachusetts at the time. And I did a lot of federal issues. He was trying to get money for the Central Artery Project, the so-called Big Dig, and I was assigned to do that. Uh, he was trying to prevent bases from closing. Hanscom Air Force Base is a very important base in the in the Boston area because it buys all the electronics for the Air Force. So uh, he wanted to keep that open and we did. Uh, so I worked on a lot of federal issues and then I had my third child and I was making $56,000 a year in the governor's office. So I joined Pfizer and I represented them from a public affairs perspective in New England. And then eventually they moved me to New York and I, I handled the national portfolio. Wow, it's really interesting. Uh, a lot of experience there. And I wonder how you're thinking about drug policy now, the, the illegal drug policy side of things, because um, as you know, cannabis has become legal in most states. And you, you know they're talking about MDMA and other sorts of therapies being introduced to treat different types of mental illnesses. How do you feel about all that happening? On illegal drug policy, the thing that concerns me most is the uh, is fentanyl. 
and opioids, which are streaming into the country almost unchecked. And, uh, you know, we're seeing more than 100,000 overdoses for, uh, of drugs. I'm not a big fan of cannabis legalization. I think that, that uh, the side effects of cannabis have not been well reported. Um, I'm a sort of fan of Alex Berenson, who wrote a book about this because his psychiatrist's wife pointed to the fact that heavy cannabis use was associated with psychosis in some people. So, uh, you know, I worked in the drug policy world, so that's what you'd probably expect to me, me to be skeptical about cannabis. And and I am. I, I, I am. I think the that uh, it, the side effects have not been well, well publicized. Yeah. And I could speak to the, also the, you know, as you said, the fentanyl issue, my wife works at BMC. And as you know, Mass and Cass is an area there where there's a lot of drug users and heavy population of homeless people. And it's really sad and tragic. And I think this is not a just a Boston issue. It's a worldwide issue, but particularly in many you know cities in the United States, it's it just keeps getting worse. So I, I yeah. hope, you know, policy or some innovative ideas come along to make this better, but I don't really see a way out yet. So, but, um, you know, we can go down a rabbit hole talking about this, but I think maybe, do you have any further comments on that? I just wanted to. No, I was just going to say that the problem with fentanyl is that, uh, you know, the traditional solutions to this on the demand side would be drug education and drug treatment and drug education is not terribly effective with fentanyl because many of the pills are disguised as Xanax or other things. So, even young people don't know how to stay away from fentanyl because they don't know what it is, what it looks like. And drug treatment has not been terribly effective with with opioids and fentanyl. So uh, I'm I'm very concerned about it. I, I'm I'm uh, uh, I'm I'm not optimistic that this is going to end well. Well, I appreciate your perspective there. Um, so let's talk about the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and how it might impact biotech, biopharma, big pharma. Uh, and what it does is it essentially allows the government to control the pricing of certain drugs so that it can uh, be affordable to many people in the population. Uh, but do you want to dive a little bit deeper into it and what your thoughts are? Yeah, sure. It's, uh, you know, they, they've been trying to enact price controls on drugs for many decades now, and they finally did it. And I'm not sure people in the biotech community are aware about how sweeping this this law is. Um it's uh, the intention was to control prices just in the Medicare program. Initially, during the legislative process, they also wanted to cascade those price controlled prices into the commercial markets. They decided legally they couldn't do that. So what they did instead is they said, when we reach a price negotiated with the Medicare program, we're going to publicly disclose what that price is. So most observers would say that inevitably, the Medicare price-controlled prices are going to bleed into the commercial market because United Healthcare is going to ask for the price that Medicare has negotiated. So it's going to be a substantial revenue hit. Now, it's the program starts out slow. They announced 10 drugs that would be price-controlled by 2026, uh, late last year, Eliquis being the the, the biggest one. It has $12 billion in sales in Medicare and $18 billion in sales overall. And so the CBO estimates that about 50 per, there will be about a 50% reduction in price in these programs. So Eliquis might see a $6 billion hit. I'm skeptical that it's just going to be $6 billion. I, I I, I don't think that the government is going to settle for 50 cents on the dollar when they could get 75 cents on the dollar uh, discount. Um, but it's it's a very sweeping program. So it starts out just price controlling 10 drugs in 2026. 
2027, it goes up to 15. 2028, it's 15 more. 2029, it's 20. And then 2030, it's 20. So by 2031, the top 100 drugs in the Medicare program are going to be subject to price controls. And if you look at the the, the Medicare budget in 2021, uh, the top 100 drugs had sales to Medicare of $131 billion. So if you cut that by 50%, which is what the CBO estimate is, you're taking $65 billion out of the, the biopharma ecosystem. And I would say it's probably going to be more than that because, as I said, some of these prices are going to bleed. Some of these price controls are going to bleed into the commercial markets. So you're, going to, you're talking about 80 or $90 billion, is, uh, some estimates that I've seen, being taken out of the system every single year. And I know from my days at Pfizer that um, the, way, the way pharma companies in particular s- save money quickly is they cut clinical trials. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a real difficult thing, for example, to close a manufacturing facility because you have to go to the labor department and notify them about job losses. You got to do environmental mitigation. There's a whole complicated process involved in in canceling in in closing a manufacturing site. Canceling a clinical trial, you just don't do it. It's it's a very simple and easy way to to save money. I'm particularly concerned about Massachusetts, which is heavy in pharma R and D, biopharma R and D. And I think they're going to take a disproportionate hit from this um, from this bill, uh, from this law. Eighty billion is is not not a small amount of money, um, particularly if it's going to hit R and D. And there certainly are going to be fewer biotech deals by twenty thirty. Um, big pharma is not going to be buying as many biotech companies as they were in the past. Um, I, I have no doubt about that. Wow. So that's my grave concern about it. Uh, I, you know, I, things change. You never know. They could repeal it. Things could happen. But there are, there are many problems with this law. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, you know, the government's trying to here provide affordable drugs for people, but at the same time, they're uh, misincentivizing a lot of the companies that are producing these drugs and potentially holding back some of the innovation that these pharma biopharma biotech companies are trying to work on so it's quite interesting and we'll see how it plays out for sure there is one part of this it's uh the orphan cures act have you heard of that where i mean i'm sure you have it's where the the rare disease um, drug can only be indicated for one disease uh, instead of multiple ones that seems really strange to me because a lot of these treatments can be used for multiple indications so and and by restricting that ability seems counterintuitive to me but yeah no i i think that's a very problematic feature of the law Um, i'm glad you pointed to it and i think it's particularly harmful to cancer research oncology research because many oncology companies will get an indication for a smaller cancer knowing and thinking that if they put it back in clinical trials they're going to get an indication for a larger cancer and and make a lot of money on the drug It, it it turns out this law has a major disincentive for them to turn around and do that second clinical trial, which is going to is going to stymie knowledge of cancer. I just don't see any way around it. It's very problematic. And, and on top of that, there's a there's a differential in the law between small molecules and large molecules. Small molecules can be subject to price controls two years earlier than large molecules. And and again, that's particularly harmful to cancer drugs, neurology drugs, any small molecule drug that can easily pass through the blood-brain barrier is going to be an attractive drug for cancer and neurology. And, you know, th- this, this law provides a disincentive to that. Um, 
I saw some congressional testimony from a biotech entrepreneur and investor and scientist who said when he saw this law pass, he sampled a hundred of the top venture firms in the United States that funded biotech. And he said 75 out of the 100 said they were scaling back investments in small molecule drugs because of the two-year uh, cutoff of, of return on investment as part of this law. So it's, it's a very problematic law for biotech and for big pharma. So how would you suggest a young biotech or young biopharma company work around these policies? Or how would you, what tips would you advise them with to, to be successful? Well, I, I mean, I would spend a lot of time with my venture financiers and financiers and, and, and say, okay, here are the projects we were thinking of launching. What do you think of the return on these? Uh, because, you know, drugs that are going to be a blockbuster and, and are going to be a flag in the Medicare program to, for price controls are going to be problematic. And drugs that are small molecule drugs are going to be problematic as far as the return. So I would, I would recommend that they spend a lot of time with their financiers and say, okay, here are the projects we're thinking of launching. What do you think of these based on the, you know, the changes in the law? Very interesting. Um, let's talk about the 340B drug program and how it sort of also misaligns incentives for hospitals. And then maybe we can, I kind of want to segue into your book a little bit because I feel like it ties into rationing medicine. Can you discuss the current landscape there? Yeah, the 340B program is a very problematic program. It sounds like a very wonkish, weird little thing to talk about, but it actually, by 2026, it will be the largest federal drug program. And basically, in 1992, the Congress decided they were going to give deep discounts to certain hospitals that treated a lot of low-income patients, which is unobjectionable to me. Uh, but, and then for a few years, the program worked quite well. Uh, you know, there were about 500 hospitals that participated. They were in low income rural and urban areas, and they saved a lot of money on the drugs they purchased. But unfortunately, you know, as with many federal programs, it got taken over by the vendors and the hospitals discovered that, Hey, if we can buy a drug at a deep discount, and then we can get a a patient who's wealthy to come in and who has good insurance, we can arbitrage those discounts and buy the, the drug for, for at a low price and then bill these payers, these either Medicare or health insurance companies at high price, and we can keep the spread. And that has caused the program to take off. Um, and, you know, the disconcerting thing is that hospitals are getting billions and billions in revenue through this program, which was intended to serve low-income people and uninsured people. And as it turns out, the, the charity care numbers for many of these 340B hospitals are in steep decline over the past decade or so. So the program is not working as it, it's, it's intended. It's taken a lot of revenue out of the biopharma space. And I have I have big problems with it. Uh, I, I don't have big problems with serving low income people and getting giving them drug discounts. But uh, you know, to for hospitals to use the program simply as arbitrage and to make billions of dollars on it is problematic in my mind. Um, and it doesn't help innovation. You know, it, it just it just doesn't. Right. It feels like the ones with good insurance or can pay out of pocket um, potentially are getting screwed out of the deal. Right. And yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, what hospitals have done is they've opened satellite offices. I don't know if you've seen this experience in Massachusetts. I have. Mass General opens offices in Wellesley and Concord and very high income areas because 
They can get patients come in. They can prescribe them high-cost drugs. They can bill their payers, and they can buy the drug at deep discounts through 340B. It, it's, a, it's a program that's now serving the wealthy and not, not the poor, and, and that's not what was intended. Do you, can you think of a solution or some sort of way to make this better? I, in my view, I think we should go slowly on reforming the program only because I am aware of hospitals that really depend upon, they serve a lot of low-income patients. Medicaid reimbursements are paltry. They don't, they don't, they're not generous at all. So if you're serving a lot of Medicaid patients and you're serving low-income patients, you kind of need the 340B program. And I would want to harm those hospitals that are doing the right thing right up front. I think the best thing you could do is transparency right up front. So each hospital should tell us exactly how much money they're taking in from 340B and how much charity care under a uniform definition of charity care, how much they're giving out. So then we would know who are the bad actors and the good actors. And there are some good actors. I, I've, I've pulled the data on some Massachusetts hospitals like the Boston Medical Center, where they're giving almost double digit uh, charity care to their um, to their low income populations in their neighborhood uh, as a percentage of their revenues. And some wealthy hospitals in Massachusetts will go unnamed are giving less than 1% of their revenues in charity care. So there are good actors and bad actors. And I think transparency should be the first thing we, we look at so that we can we can point to the good actors and the bad actors. Yeah, you make a good point. Um, one about being more transparent and the second about going slowly. So when we are thinking or policymakers are thinking about new instituting new policies, we should really think deeply about all the implications. And I think it's generally it's a hard problem, right? Because you're dealing with millions of people's lives in different regions of the country, um, especially when talking about federal law. So it's a tough problem. I mean, let's, you know, not beat around the bush. It's really hard to figure this out. Um, and it is one of it the is. metrics and that is being used, I think, is the quality metric. So we want to dive a little bit into that and what that means and how that could impact low income people, too. Yeah. So the quality metric is is used widely in Europe and not Germany is one exception, but most countries in Europe use a quality metric. And basically, they rate drug therapies according to their ability to extend life, longevity, and to improve the quality of life. So there are, there are two standards that the quality uses to judge drug therapies. And, you know, you might say, oh, that sounds like common sense. If a drug makes you live longer and live better, then it should get a higher mark. It sounds good in the abstract, but like many things that are simple in the abstract, it doesn't work out in practical circumstances. So, for example, if you're a person living with disabilities and a drug comes along that's going to extend your life significantly, but it doesn't improve your quality of life. You don't get out of a wheelchair. You're not ambulatory. You, you, you're still stuck with your disability. Well, that drug might not get a high rating, even though it's going to cause you to live longer because the second poll involving quality of life, it doesn't get a good score on that. So it kind of discriminates against certain populations based upon the kind of the simplistic nature of the the uh, the, the standard, and uh, it's problematic to me. And I think it impacts people. Uh, for example, rare disease drugs. It, it's the quality. What the quality does is it says, okay, a year of life lived in good health is worth X, and that could be a million dollars. It could be ten dollars, and so they they that's how they price the drug. If it if a drug is is extends your life significantly and improves your quality of life significantly, you might get a million dollar rating. If it doesn't, you might get a 
$200,000 rating. And, and the quality says in, in nations that use the quality, they say, we're not going to pay more than, than the price of this drug. The problem is rare disease drugs don't fit into this category. The thresholds for rare disease drugs need to be very high because if you're making a drug for a population of 500, it's going to be very expensive. And the, the quality methodology can't really take this into account. And they have a dif difficult time rating rare disease drugs. And many rare disease drugs who have gone through the quality process get rated as not cost effective for that reason, even though they might save a person's life. So I have a, a great deal of problems with the quality, um, and fortunately, the U.S. doesn't look like it's in danger of taking it up, unlike the European nations. Uh, the, the House has voted to ban the, the use of quality in uh, federal programs, um, and even the White House has expressed concern about using the quality, quality in the Medicare program because they think it, it discriminates against people living with disabilities. So uh, I'm somewhat optimistic that the American political culture isn't going to embrace the quality as quickly as the European culture has. Interesting. Um, I have a couple of questions here before we wrap up. Uh, one is, will the U.S. ever see a single payer system like in European nations? Why or why not? I, I hope not. <laughs> um, I, I don't. I don't think so, uh, is, is the answer. Um, I think we have uh, very vibrant commercial health plans uh, that d deliver, in general, a quality, quality product. Uh, everybody knows that innovation dries up when you have single-payer systems, as we've seen in Europe. Europe, had, Europe was the place to do life sciences research 30 years ago. Um, the pharma industry and the biotech industry was a, a European creation, and now it's largely a U.S. creation because many health systems in Europe adopted single-payer systems, imposed price controls on drugs, and companies said, you know what, I don't want to be in an area where um, where they discriminate against uh, biopharma innovation. And so, you know, you can walk through Cambridge now and you can throw a rock and you can hit every major European country with a uh, that has a R&D facility Novartis you go down the list GSK they're all in Cambridge and they're all in in the US so uh, I, I would I would be skeptical about a single payer system from a perspective of innovation interesting points I appreciate that answer um, my next question is related to the 2024 election and just wondering what issues do you think are going to be very important for primary candidates to be sharing and discussing with the, the public um, as we gear into potentially the most important election of our lifetime? <laughs> well, you know, from a biopharma perspective, the, the environment is hard to figure out because Trump is such an unreliable uh, supporter of the industry. He had some people there, Thomas Phillipson, for example, who was for a time the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, who's an economist at Chicago, who is very, very attuned to the problem of innovation and, and the biopharma industry. But nonetheless, for political reasons, Trump-based Trump importation and also all sorts of other ideas that really were anti-pharma. And he, you know, he wanted to basically demagogue the issue of drug prices. So it's hard to say. I mean, I think the Democratic candidates will be down the line anti-pharma, uh, anti-biopharma. But Republicans, hard to say. Um, so it, it, it's it's a crapshoot in my in my view. I, I just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people are in that position too. We don't know what's going to happen. But so, Bill, I just want to thank you one more time for being on this 
podcast and talk to me about biotech, you know, your experience and the future of biopharma and how potentially pricing could be a really, really important issue. So do you have any final takeaways you'd like to share with the audience? No, no, I just, uh, the audience should keep their fingers crossed. I mean, I'm a big fan of biotech. I think that breakthroughs that we're seeing, uh, my wife used to work for Larry Summers when he was president of Harvard. And he used to say that if, uh, biotech research and, and biological research were art, we would now be in the high Renaissance, Mm. the greatest breakthroughs and discoveries that are happening right now. And I'm, I'm concerned that we're going to jeopardize that. Um, I'm, I'm very concerned we're going to jeopardize that. Well, at Vibio, we're optimistic. I think there's a lot of potential, um, especially with the advent of you know LLMs and AI and different types of drug discovery tools. So we shall see. But I think there's a lot of promise ahead. I hope you're right. I do hope you're right. I appreciate it, Bill. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Ray. Thanks for having me.